0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five. Five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on Space Nuts, the astronomy podcast with me, Andrew Dunkley, your host who knows nothing, and Fred Watson. From the Australian Astronomical Observatory who knows slightly more than that. <laughs> Hello, friend.
1: <laughs> Actually you're being generous
0: there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, one uh, thing yeah. one thing we're good at in Australia is self deprecation. <laughs> Now today we're going to be talking about helicopter drones on Mars, I'm fascinated by that, Uh, extreme exoplanets, or one in particular that they're focusing on that seems to be um, a hot topic, boom boom, and uh, Indian success again in space, so uh, plenty to talk about today. Fred, uh, helicopter drones on Mars, this fascinates me. I, as you know, I love Mars, um, everything about it, and I'm just so thrilled that it's close enough for us to explore so very, very uh, uh, intimately, if you like. Uh, helicopter drones, though, that sounds like a pretty big
1: step forward. Uh, it, it is, and it will be uh, when it happens. At the moment, <laughs> that, this is nothing more uh, than a concept study. So uh, European, the European Space Agency commissioned a concept study on something called the small Mars system, uh, or SMS. I I think it means the system is small, not Mars is small, although Mars is only half the size of the Earth. But anyway, the Mm. small Mars system. And that uh, study has now been published. And among the, uh, the suggestions for better exploring the surface of Mars, robotically, is the use of helicopter drones, and this is a new suggestion. Drones have been suggested on Mars before, but fixed wing drones, ones that would fly, you know, in a, in a more conventional way, a bit like model aeroplanes. Uh, But the idea of a helicopter is a fascinating one because it is by no means straightforward. So why would you need a drone? Well, if you imagine that you've got a rover on the surface of Mars, and indeed there are already several rovers on the surface of Mars doing a brilliant job. But um, how much better a rover could do its job if you could look at the landscape from above? Uh, with a with a a drone, you know, just a, the kind of drone that we see commonly now here on Earth, particularly in uh, in TV broadcasting. Uh, there's a lot of drones that are used to get aerial footage uh, for TV. Mm. So, uh, but for exploring, of course, this this will be brilliant. You can see which are the interesting rocks to look at. You could avoid terrain that would uh, in- inhibit the rover's progress. Uh, all of that kind of thing would be helped by a drone. <clears throat> However. A number of problems. Uh, one is, first of all, that uh, if you're talking about a drone, I mean, think of the people you've seen flying drones here on Earth, uh, where they stand there with their control panel, they're often looking at a TV screen, seeing what the drone is seeing, and they can control where it wants to go or where they want it to go uh, simply by sending radio signals. With Mars, of course. Uh, you send a radio signal from Earth, and it takes well 20 minutes or something like that, depending on the, dis- the uh, distance at the time yeah. to Mars. Uh, and then the drone does what you're asking it to, and 20 minutes later, you see whether it's worked or not. This is clearly not going to work, and so the uh, the, the idea is to equip these drones with enough artificial intelligence that they can really become autonomous uh, and and basically do their own scouting around and feeding the information back. They can avoid obstacles. Uh, they can uh, you know, land safely if the power goes out, and things of that sort. Give them in- enough intelligence to be able to do that. Um, there are a number of other problems, though. One is, that of course, with drones on Earth, they all use rechargeable batteries, and as soon as the batteries run out, and they come back. You charge them up again by yep. plugging plugging them into the mains, and there is no mains on Mars. Mm. And so, solar um, chargers, maybe it su- suggests solar panels. That's right. Uh, one See, of the I suggestions... have learned
0: something after talking yeah, to you there for you twenty go. years.
1: <laughs> Not bad, eh? Not bad. Uh, Possibly putting the solar panels on the rotors themselves, uh, and um, you know uh, trying to uh, uh, ensure that there is enough power that way. But there, it clearly does need some kind of solar power source. That's a problem on Mars, of course, because Mars is 50% further away from the sun than the Earth is, so the so, sun's radiation drops. Proportionately actually by the square of the of the, of the distance and so you've got uh, less uh, Less energy coming to your solar panels. They've got to be more effective uh, Against that is something that helps you which is that the gravity on Mars is only a third of the gravity here on Earth mm. uh, So it you don't expend have as much energy. That's right But and then there's another uh, which I think l- is l- um... let me guess these things would need to be huge uh, I think so because the atmosphere is so thin yeah. on uh, on Mars there's uh, the, the, you know the Martian air pressure is 1% of what it is here on earth so you you're going to be talking about things with fairly substantial rotor blades uh, in order to get themselves off the ground what, however like the helicopter, study, helicopter size perhaps I I doubt they'll be that big I think it's going to be more the the shape and you know the width of them that they'll look very unlike the rotors that we see uh, here on Earth-based drones, but I, I think we're still talking a fairly compact, you know, fairly compact system. Um, the study on the drones themselves is is yet to be fully published, but they have been briefly uh, described in this uh, report, and it's a suggestion is that yes, they'll be they'll be fine. They'd be uh, they would be able to work even in that very thin atmosphere.
0: Mm. I um, have uh, discovered uh, because I'm a sci-fi nut, I love watching sci-fi films, that this is not a new concept Concept In the science fiction world because there was a movie released in the year 2000 called Red Planet and they had a combat drone uh, uh-huh. with there them and, and so they used a helicopter drone in that film so. The science fiction people are ahead of the game. Uh, There was a book I was reading. I haven't finished it. I'm pretty lazy. But um, it was all about the the terraforming and occupation of Mars. And they they, um, solved the problem of uh, getting around by using airships on the planet. Ah,
1: there you go, yeah, that's actually been suggested uh, in uh, science as well, I've seen suggestions of exploring Mars with airships I think that, again, presents the problem that to get the required level of buoyancy, you've got to have a pretty big envelope for the airship and it becomes, um, you know, something the size of a small a small <laughs> ast- asteroid uh, floating around but yeah, that's been thought of too interesting mm. stuff, isn't it? What what, uh, what we might see in the next decade or so Yes, yeah, very excellent. exciting,
0: but uh, yep. I, I, I yeah, drones could definitely solve a lot of problems um, that, that rovers run into, literally. Uh, you're <laughs> listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. OK, we
1: checked all
0: four systems and with a go. Space Nuts. OK, Fred, uh, now we're going to visit an exoplanet and for the last 25 years or so, we've been finding more and more of these things. I remember when we found the first one and you and I talked about it and we were all excited and, you know, uh, up until then it was theory. Now there are... Thousands of them and probably in the universe, billions of them. But uh, one in particular has captured the imagination of astronomers uh, this week uh, because it's, uh, it's a pretty hot planet. In fact, uh, <laughs> I, I think I read that it uh, could be hotter than a small star in, in, uh, in real terms.
1: Absolutely, uh, this is a place where you really would not want to go for your holidays. Uh, you know, forget it; it's just <laughs> too extreme. Uh, and that's why it's uh, hit the headlines, Andrew, because um, it, it, you know, this is one of these things that defies um, the bounds of what we know already. And in fact, uh, what what we've got here is a planet that is going around the hottest and most massive star that we know has a planet, if I can put it that way. So um, there, are, there are hotter and more massive stars, but um, they're not known to have planets around them. So that's the that's the record-breaker uh, aspect of this. It is uh, a very hot world. It's a Jupiter-mass uh, planet, so that means it's a gas giant, mm-hmm. uh, but it's unlike Jupiter, which sits way, way out in the cold zone of the solar system this one sits right up against uh, not touching but not far off uh, its parent star which is much bigger and brighter than the sun it's a it's a hot um, a hot uh, what, what we call an a star an a star is a, a category uh, of, of stars uh, which pushes it to the high temperature end of the of the star spectrum um the temperature of the star itself is in the region of 10,000 degrees <laughs> Celsius uh, that's Celsius Holy that's right yeah. so that's the temperature at the at the surface of the star oh and this object is so near to it this planet that it's estimated that its own temperature um, that's at the top of its cloud belts is about uh, 4,000 uh, I beg your pardon about 5,500 let me get this figure right. I'm, I'm sure you will. Figure <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you why it's a problem. <laughs> it's because we um let me just get, put an aside here andrew astronomers always refer to star temperatures in degrees kelvin mm. which is degrees above absolute zero now they are um different from degrees celsius because there's a an offset of 273 <laughs> degrees between them and the figure i was just about to give you uh was uh, the figure in degrees kelvin so it's uh, actually um it's a bit it, it's actually a bit warmer than that in celsius uh it's um uh, uh, actually partner, a bit cooler than that in Celsius, let's get it right it's about 4200 degrees Celsius right. that's a big number, 4200 degrees compared with the temperature at the uh, at the outer surface of the sun, which is 5,500 degrees Celsius. So it's not actually that much cooler than the sun. And what makes it even more extreme is the fact that this planet is so close to its parent star that it is tidally locked. That means it rotates in the same length of time as it spins on its axis, so it always keeps the same face. Towards its parent star, so it's always so one d- side, just like the moon to Earth. Exactly like the moon to Earth, except mm. the Earth is not uh, shining at uh, you know ten thousand two hundred degrees 10, or so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so there's um yeah, it, it's there's no doubt that this is extremely hot. I uh, read the paper, uh, the p- published paper in the the scientific journal Nature about this uh, about this planet. The paper is titled a giant planet undergoing extreme ultraviolet irradiation by its hot, massive star host. And that gives you a clue to one of the other un- really unusual aspects of this. This uh, this particular star is very rich in ultraviolet light, that's to say light that is more violet than violet. It's the high-energy end of the, of the spectrum. So it's blasting this poor planet with uh, extreme ultraviolet. And what that is doing, uh, well, first of all, it dissociates all the... Uh, molecules that might be present in the atmosphere of this planet into their individual atomic components. So for example, if there was water vapor in there, that would long ago have turned into hydrogen and oxygen because the ultraviolet energy just dismantles the molecules. But it also means that the the atmosphere of this planet is actually blowing away. It's um, almost comet-like in its appearance. The planet uh, has a, you know, has a, an atmosphere of, of material streaming away from it, being blown along by the, the wind from this parent star, uh, which means that the, the planet is probably temporary. It probably won't be there for much longer than, oh. well, they estimate 300 million years, which is... Um, quite a long time by earthly standards but in terms of planets it's not very long at all no no not at all I, I, there is one advantage of course for um, the
0: girls of california and bondi beach uh, they'll have a lot more spare time because they won't have to spend hours and hours on the beach getting a sunbake you know they'll pop outside turn around walk back in done <laughs> i'm gonna leave that one alone <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, you know, under those conditions, I, I don't think you would last
1: a split second, would you? No, that's absolutely not. Um, and one, just one other aspect about this, uh, this research that I think is great, uh, it, it involves citizen science. So some of the observations were made by a group actually here in Australia uh, using small amateur telescopes. One of them, uh, a guy called T.G. Tan, is somebody I've co- corresponded with a fair bit on other discoveries he's made. It's fabulous amateur astronomers can contribute to this kind of research, which really is at the cutting edge of science. Uh, so I think um, I'm very happy to see that. And finally, this planet uh, rejoices in the name of Kelt 9 b Kelt uh, 9 b uh, is, Kelt uh, uh, 9 is the name of the parent star. Kelt is actually an acronym, as you might expect, um, and it refers to the telescope that was discovered, that was used to discover this uh, planet, which is called the Kilo Degree Extremely Little Telescope, uh, <laughs> or count So I, I, I do like the name of that. Kilo Degree means a thousand degrees of sky that it looks at.
0: Okay, I'll, I'll give them credit for that one. Just yeah,
1: yeah. Right. <laughs> mm, Great right.
0: stuff. I'm sure we'll learn more about uh, this planet and many other exoplanets in time to come. This, this one, though, is uh, right out there, literally.
1: Uh, this <laughs> is Space
0: Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we're going to uh, look at one of the uh, more recent arrivals into the space race, that of the nation of India, and it looks
1: like they've uh, they've had some success. Uh, indeed they have, Andrew. They've launched uh, the first uh, mission of their new heavy lift rocket, uh, which is a rocket with the name of Geosynchronous Satellite Launch Vehicle Mark III, um, which they abbreviate to GSLV Mark III. Um, uh, So it's a big rocket. Uh, The liftoff launch weight is 640 tonnes, which doesn't mean much to you and I, uh, but it does when you put it in a very Indian context, which is to say that is the equivalent of 200 elephants. (laughs) Um, <laughs> yeah, that's so, an official measurement. That's an official measurement. That's right. Uh, it's yeah, it's a heavy lift uh, vehicle, and a great credit to India, the Indian Space uh, Agency, uh, who have uh, masterminded this and set this project into action and given themselves effectively a, a, a very useful tool for lifting geostationary satellites into orbit now geostationary satellites remember are ones that orbit around the earth in the same time as the earth rotates namely 24 hours and so they seem to sit above the equator at the same point point. and they're used very frequently for broadcast communications for uh, for internet and, um, and you know data communication they are very much the workhorse of the communication industry, the space communication industry. We use them all the time. We might even be using one as we speak. Or like you Stalf never or know. Sydney to Dubbo, you never know. There might be other ways of doing that. Well, we do um, have we do have a massive Vodafone
0: satellite Earth station here in Dubbo for global yes, communication purposes. Yeah, so. yeah they
1: there you go. That's right. So, so that's what these uh, Earth stations are looking at. And, of course, if you want to improve your uh, your coverage, what you need is more satellites. The Indians recognize this. They did not have a vehicle that could launch a heavy spacecraft up to geostationary because they've got to go up to 36,000 kilometers. That's the height of geostationary uh, sa- satellites. A long, long way. Um, so uh, the GSLV Mark Three can do that, and it can do it for a payload of uh, up to three tons, and three tons is a very significant mass for one of these uh, geostationary satellites. So uh, it's all credit to the Indians. They've they've done a great job. And and I think this uh, vehicle also feeds into India's aspirations towards being the fourth nation to have astronauts in orbit around the Earth. Uh, uh, they, They would like to follow uh, the United States, uh, Russia and China, uh, as being the fourth uh, spacefaring nation in terms of getting humans into orbit. And I bet they will, too.
0: And before anyone says it, yes, there have been other nationalities in space, but they haven't been the country. That's that's right.
1: Those... That, that's correct. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. So just that's to clarify it. that.
0: Oh, for the record, uh, 200 elephants is the equivalent to the weight of five jumbo jets.
1: Actually, I, um, I I didn't mention that because um, I thought I th- I would have guessed about two jumbo jets, but I might be wrong now. Well, look, you know, <laughs> it's a long time since I weighed a jumbo jet. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. No, of course, us. that's right. That's, that's the motto of journalism
0: in, in the modern era. Um, uh,
1: absolutely, yes.
0: And also, I'm, I'm sure you already knew this, but uh, the Indians, um, have, yeah, they've, they've blasted off a big rocket, but it's by no means the biggest ever. NASA still holds that record with the Saturn V. Yeah, that's right. Which is uh,
1: enormous. I've been under one. Yeah, I mean, they are extraordinary. Uh, I, I think the um, Saturn V is something like three or four times more massive than uh, you know than, than this monster Indian rocket. Yeah. Uh, it, it actually the Saturn V. Uh, still holds the record of uh, the total liftoff mass being very massive indeed, about four times, in fact, the, what the, the GSLV is.
0: It was a lot of effort to get three people off the ground, really. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. It was uh, it's where they were going that's the trick.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly right.
1: Mm. Magical stuff.
0: All right, Magical well, good luck stuff. to India. Uh, we'll watch with interest, but it's great that there's another player in the game and that they've had success with the supermassive elephant rocket, and uh, <laughs> we'll keep an eye on them. Absolutely. Sounds great. Now, next week, Fred, uh, there's a couple of things we've, we've already got on the agenda. Uh, we've had a, a question about um, a, a, a rocket plane or a space plane that's been unveiled, which uh, 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 um, I think we could talk about. But we've also had a question about the um, impact point uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, um, which uh we will look into so thank you for that question uh and there's a story coming out that um you can't talk about yet (laughs) but i will be
1: but i will be able to next week yeah we'll have a ball next week yes indeed fred as always thank you it's been a great pleasure great pleasure to talk to you too Andrew and uh, watch out for those elephants indeed
0: <laughs> we'll catch you. we've got a few in Dubbo at the zoo yeah, uh, we'll catch you next week, thanks Fred yeah. uh, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and thank you for listening to Space Nuts uh, whether you're listening through Apple Podcasts Podbean, Stitcher, Audio Boom, Pocket Cast or, uh, or somewhere else it's everywhere uh, and don't forget you can also follow us on Facebook and send us your questions we're happy to give them uh, a bit of a run as well and uh, that's about it for us uh, for this week. Don't forget Space Time with Stuart Gary. He's available on all those uh, platforms as well, our sister uh, broadcast or podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from him.
1: Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
0: Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from Tights.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld.
0: Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob
1: legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.